we're in a series looking at really God's vision for community. And when I say community, I mean just all of the different relationships in our life. We're, we're looking at God's vision for those things. God's vision for your family, God's vision for your marriage, God's vision for your friendships, God's vision for uh, even just your relationships that you have with those that are coworkers or in your neighborhood. Just what is God's vision? We, we don't just want community. We want a kingdom community, which means we want a community or relationships that are defined by God's vision. That is what the idea of kingdom is, is what would it look like in God's kingdom? What is God's vision for our relationships? And we often have a vision for our relationships. You probably have a vision for your marriage and your uh, friendships. You probably have kind of a picture of this is how I want it to look like. This is how I want it to be. And it might be compared to something you've had in the past it might be compared to other people that you know. It might be compared to just kind of what you see uh, in the media. That you're like, yeah, that's, that's what I want. I want that kind of romance. I want those kind of friends. I want this kind of life with, with other people. I want what this book says or what this blog says. Or maybe it's just what you've just dreamed up that you say, that's my vision. And we have a vision for our relationships. But it's often hard to realize Whatever your vision is for your relationships, you can have a vision, you can write it down, you can think about it in your mind, but it doesn't mean it just instantly comes to pass. It's often actually hard to realize because we've got this picture, but then we got work and we're busy and we're tired and we're stressed and there's other things going on in our life and it's easy to have a vision, but often hard to actually have that realized. You've probably seen some of these different things. I was th as I was thinking about this, this came to my mind. Um, on the internet, different memes where you've got kind of an expectation or a vision of something and then the reality, right? <laughs> where you've got like uh, Chernobyl Elmo and normal Elmo. I don't, uh, you know, I don't, is that too soon? Some of you were like, ooh, Chernobyl, sorry. Um, but you've got these expectations of this is what it's going to be like in your relationships or whatever, your community, and then the reality. And this is true with all sorts of things. Maybe you are wanting to kind of redecorate your home, and this is your vision. This is beautiful, right? If your home looks like this, good congratulations. You know, you are hated by everyone. And then here is the reality, or realidad in Spanish, right? And I love this picture because I love this one because this isn't awful, right? This doesn't suck, but it's just, it's not this. It's just it's a red couch, and you know, they're even trying to match red cushions, but it's just, you know, they got a plant, they got a plant, it's just, it's okay. And sometimes that's what life is like, where it's, we've got this vision of our marriage and our, and our family and our friend, and it's like, ah, it doesn't suck, I got a plant, but it's not quite what we want it to be. You've got a vision of your home office, right? Everyone, not everyone, but many of us are working from home, and many people are working from home more. And you're like, okay, this is what it's going to be. But really, you don't even try. It's, I don't even, this one is just like, there's just a, does, doesn't even try. Or mom happy hour, right? And you've got this beautiful wine and homemade bread, and there's a lake that just appears in your backyard. And it's just like, yes, that's what I want. And it's really just like two cups. I don't even know. This is like in the laundry room or two, two cups fuller than they should be. And, you know, that's what it actually looks like. And one final one to hanging out with friends. This is the expectation. 
And sometimes this is the reality, right? Everyone just on their phones and not even enjoying life. And we can have a vision of our relationships. We can have a vision of our marriage and our friendships and our family and all of that stuff, but it's often hard to realize. It's easier to have a picture. It's easier to say, this is what I want it to be than actually bringing it about. And in order to see God's vision for our lives and and really even the vision that we want for our lives, in order to see that happen, we need to have both God's vision and understand what that is and his power to bring it about in our lives. And in a word, God's vision for your life, God's vision for our life, in a word is salvation. And oftentimes when we think of the word salvation, we think about God's rescue of us. And that's true. Salvation has to do with God rescuing us, but it isn't just God's rescue of us from something. It is God's rescue to something, bringing us into an entire way of life, bringing us into his kingdom. He saves us from something, but he saves us to something. God brings us into his kingdom. And some of the language that we'll look at in this passage today, God brings us into a banquet. God brings us into his home. God brings us into his family. All of this language about salvation has to do with the fact that God takes us from something, but brings us into his vision, into a way of life where we experience joy with him where we experience deep friendship and connection with others, where we experience God's justice in the way that life is supposed to be, where we experience God and his presence and a connection with him, that God takes us from something. And salvation is not just rescue, but that he brings us into a whole existence, a whole kingdom, a whole way of life. And that really, in a word, is what God's vision is for our community. And for your relationships in all the different ways, God's vision is salvation. And what would it look like and how do we get to live into that vision that God has for us? How do we experience God's vision for our relationships? Really, that's what we're looking at through this whole series, looking at different values and practices of of what that means. And today, I want to talk about salvation and how we experience that vision that he has and who it is that that can come to, how it comes, and really what that affects in our life. And Jesus is asked a question. He's asked a question about salvation, and he goes on to explain. So let's take a look at this together. In Luke 13, 22, we'll read the whole thing and then kind of come back through. It says this he, about Jesus. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
And all the prophets, those are kind of all the the heroes and the founding fathers of the Old Testament. All the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, go, get out of here. Herod, that's the king, wants to kill you. He said to them, go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will complete my work. That's just kind of a, he doesn't actually mean this day, this day, this day. Uh, That's just kind of an idiomatic way of speaking to say there's kind of a sequence of events that is happening. Yet it's necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day. Because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as we look at God's vision, we start with this question. Who does salvation come to? God's vision for our community, for our relationships is really in that word, salvation. Who does it come to then? If this is what God desires, if this is what his vision is for us, who gets it? Who, does it, who is it brought to? Who gets to experience this? And there's three different things I want to show you here. The first is this, not everyone. Jesus says this. He says, enter through the narrow door. Many will try to enter and won't be able, which means who it comes to, simply not everyone. Jesus says that it's a narrow door. Now listen, in our culture today, when we use the word narrow-minded, we use that as a bad thing, as an insult, right? No one would say, yeah, what's one of your, what's one of your characteristics? Well, I'm pretty extroverted. Oh, I'm narrow-minded. Yeah, that's one of the things that describe me. You're going in for a job interview. Tell me about yourself. Well, I'm very narrow-minded. I, you know, I prize myself in that. That's not a positive thing. And Jesus says that the door is narrow. Who does salvation come to? Jesus is trying to get across the point that it is not everyone. It's not everyone. That there is a narrow door. This is an unpopular teaching. I don't know kind of where you are in uh, your faith. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're exploring faith and you're kind of unsure what you believe. This is an unpopular teaching. Sometimes we like to say, aren't all religions the same? Aren't they all just different doors and different paths to the the same God? Aren't they all the same? And Jesus would say, no, it's a narrow door, which means there's not a bunch of doors. There is a narrow door, and many will try, and not all will enter. And when we even say, if if you've thought this or if you have said this, that all religions are basically the same, that's actually very disrespectful to those other religions, because they are contradictory. Christianity teaches that God is three in one, the doctrine of the Trinity. Judaism, Islam, they do not teach that. So to say, well, we're all the same, they would say, no, you're not. You are false. They would accuse us of believing in three gods, and they would think that we were wrong. 
And so if you tried to just be very enlightened and say it's all the same, they would say, you're not taking my religion seriously, and that's actually very disrespectful. Muslims do not believe that Jesus resurrected. So to say that he did would be saying, and then to say we're all the same, they would say, no, we are not. So we can sometimes have this quasi-enlightened perspective that says all religions are basically the same, but that really shows you haven't studied deeply any of the religions and taken them seriously at their own, at their own teaching. It's actually a disrespectful way to approach religions that denies all of the essence and maybe skims at the top and says, well, they're all the same because you're supposed to love people. Okay, well, I guess if you just take the basics, then all cakes are the same. Just the frosting, the fro- all cakes have frosting. But you're not getting into all the, the varied, maybe I'm just hungry right now. I don't know why I thought of cakes. You know, you're not getting into all the varied cheesecakes and what kind of fillings. There are. You're, you're just kind of taking the very surface level and saying they're all the same. It's actually very disrespectful. We also, let me just say this, when, we, when people say that, they don't really mean it. Because you might say all religions are the same, but do you really mean that ISIS is the same as Zen Buddhism? Do you really mean that Westboro Baptists are the same as uh, those that just kind of love the universe and say all is peace and all? I mean, they're, they're not the same. We don't actually believe that. A second thing that I think is important to think about in America is that oftentimes when people think about religion, that we kind of just pick and choose our own religion. We just kind of pick and choose, I like this piece And I like this from here. I like forgiveness over here. I like compassion over here. Maybe I like meditation from here. I like Jesus from here. And we kind of pick and choose our own conglomeration of things and say, yeah, it's all just kind of the same. And and I just kind of have some, some of this piece and some of this piece and some of this piece. But at the end of the day, once again, it's really creating your own doctrine, your own religion. And most of the time we find that a religion like that can't hold the weight of life. It might work when you're just kind of having good times and able to kind of pick and choose and feel nice about yourself, but when suffering comes and when life gets hard, you can't really stand under the weight of something that you've created. You can't really feel the pressure and the, the storms of life and go, okay, I know how to stand. I stand on what I have made. It doesn't really hold up. And so when we talk about this idea, who does salvation come to? The first thing I want you just to see that Jesus says is this. It's not everyone. We can't just say all religions or not any religion, but just kind of the religion that I've created. It's not everyone. Jesus says it is narrow. And Jesus says that those who reject him and his narrow door are separated him from him forever. He says, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is sorrow and anger, the gnashing of teeth is this madness that we have, that people have been judged, and this sadness that they are not in. This is, again, an unpopular teaching that can be hard to digest, but Jesus is not trying to be a popular preacher that just tells people whatever they want to hear. He's trying to help people experience salvation. And so the first thing he says is it doesn't come to everybody. But the second thing, 
and maybe for some of us, this is even more important to listen to, is that Jesus says it's not everyone that is connected to him. So it's not everyone, but it's also not everyone with Jesus. Listen to what he says here. They will say, he says, you're going to say to me this. You will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. So they say to Jesus, listen, we, why, why can't we come in? We ate and drank with you. That shows some familiarity. That shows some relationship. We were in your presence. You taught in our streets, meaning we listened to you teach. Now, in that context, as Jesus is speaking, there's actual people that he's talking about, that some of you were there. You were eating with me. We were listening to you teach the Sermon on the Mount. We were listening. We saw you do healings. We saw you do this stuff. We heard this sermon and that sermon. We heard what you said about um, loving your enemies, and we heard what you said about all of these different things. Jesus says, not everyone with me. And this is really a key point, that many people are familiar with Jesus. Many of you, maybe, maybe some of you online or here have grown up in the church. You've been around Christians for most of your life or all of your life. You may eat and drink, if we think about that, that you are with Christian friends and Christian community and enjoying relationship, and they say, we heard you teach, so you're here on Sundays. You might listen to teaching through books and podcasts, and Jesus says there are many people that will say, we ate, we had relationship, and we also listen to your teaching. These are not people that were on the hostile to Jesus. These on the extreme kind of, we don't like Jesus. These are people that Jesus says, you were familiar with me. You were around me. You listened to me. You related to me. And he says, some of them will be surprised that they are not those that are saved. They will be surprised that they are on the out and what kept them out was not this rebellious kind of sinner persona or attitude. It wasn't their rebellion, but it was their religion. It was actually that they were people that came to church and read their Bible and listened to Jesus and ate with Jesus. I'm not trying to scare anybody or make anybody go, oh, maybe that's not me. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm not one. But we should examine. We should examine if. Would I be one of those? Would I be one of the people that really my faith and my Christianity is I've listened to Jesus teach and I've been um, with Christian community, but that really is the extent of it. I remember talking to someone years ago, probably over 10 years ago now, and he, he was sharing with me kind of his experience of God and faith and not rudely, not meanly, but kind of at the end of the conversation, I wanted to ask him, I said, what, what is the difference between you and a Pharisee? Because a Pharisee is someone that knows all the Bible, is a good person and follows all the rules in, in, in some of this context, listened to Jesus' teaching, ate with Jesus. And I asked him, what's the difference between you and a Pharisee? And he didn't know. 
He couldn't think about any difference from just being a moral person that tried to live by the Bible, that believed in God. And I asked him if he loved Jesus. And he, he, he really couldn't even answer that. And he actually got very, very upset with me and told me, how dare you speak to me like this and how dare you confront my faith and question my faith. And then a couple weeks later, he came back and said, that changed everything for me. I never thought about that. I didn't love Jesus. I hadn't actually repented and responded to Jesus. And then years later after that, he even sent me a message and said, again, thank you. Like that, that really turned everything around in that moment for me. That's what Jesus is trying to do here for people. What maybe for some of us he's trying to do is to say this. Listen, you might have heard all the teaching that there is that Jesus gives. You may be around Christian community, but do you love him? Have you responded to him? Have you turned away from sin and to Jesus and said, I respond to you. I want you. I want you to save me. It's a question that we should consider. Jesus says, who does salvation come to? Not everyone. Not everyone that is with him, but everyone that will enter. Everyone that will enter. He says that people will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. And then down here even where he says, some who are last will be first, which means those that are not expected to be in will be in. See, we can look at this teaching and because it's uh, 2021 and we're in Denver, we can hear this teaching as being very exclusive. That's probably the thing that jumps off to the page to us is, wow, this is narrow and this is exclusive and uh, I don't know if I would want my friends to read this passage and that's probably what jumps off the page to us. But, as they were hearing it, it was actually a very inclusive passage that was shocking to them to say that people, it's not just the Jews, it's people from north and south and east and west and people from all over. It's actually a very inclusive passage. The point being that who is saved is anyone and everyone, not a particular ethnic group, not a particular socioeconomic status, not a particular uh, age or wealth status or whatever it is or uh, abilities or disabilities. Jesus says some that are last will be first, meaning the people that you think are the outcasts, the people that you think are the sinners, the people that you think are not in. Jesus says it will be all from east and west and north and south. Jesus is saying that my family is very inclusive. It equalizes who is in from all the nations, which means this. It's not just the, it's, it's not the good people that are in and the bad people that are out, but it is the humble that are in and the proud that are out. It is the humble that say, I need you, Jesus. I need you to save me. I want you and come in through that narrow door. Jesus is offering a broad invitation to all to come to him. That is the invitation. Those that listen and respond to him and repent 
and turn to him. Jesus is inviting, and I just can't miss the opportunity to say, if you're watching online or here, and you're exploring, and you're not a Christian, and you wonder about Jesus, this means you. He would say from north and south and east and west, from Denver to Arvada, from wherever you are, he would say, it means you, and I want you to enter into my family. He is inviting everybody. Jesus is saying, I know what it's like to be outside of salvation, outside of, and even think about the language he uses there, outside of the banquet, outside of the kingdom, outside of my home. All of those are beautiful images. He's saying, I know what life is like on the outside by yourself. I know what life is like when you're trying to figure out life alone, when you're trying to do relationships and community alone. I know what that pain is like And I am saying, come into my home. Come into my banquet. Come into the joy and the life that you can experience with me. So the first question is just, who does salvation come to? Jesus says, anyone that comes to him, which means he wants you, he wants me, he wants all of us to experience this. Second thing is, how does salvation come? come? How does it come? What what does it take to have it? Jesus can invite everybody in that comes to him, but how does it actually come? This is important for us as we want to explore his vision for our relationships, because what does it take for Jesus to actually get us into his kingdom, his salvation? And here's what it says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, And he also says about them, you were not willing. And even just the history of Jerusalem from the Old Testament, that all of the prophets that God sent over and over again, God's people, instead of receiving God's message through the prophets, rejects them and they die. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Jerusalem kills. Jerusalem kills people that they are unwilling, that they are... Um, ungrateful, if you look at you were not willing, that they're, that they're unwilling, that they reject him, that they're ungrateful, and Jesus knows this. But what does he do? He knows that Jerusalem is a place that kills and stones anyone that's sent to her. He knows that they have a, a bad rap sheet, a bad record. He knows that they're not even willing. You know how hard it is when you want to serve someone that's not willing? You want to help someone that's not willing? Jesus says, I know that's who, you're ungrateful, you're unwilling, you're going to kill me, you're going to reject me. And what does he do? Well, the beginning of the passage that we read says this, he's making his way to Jerusalem. So with that knowledge in mind, with the knowledge in mind that they're going to reject him, with the knowledge in mind that they're going to kill him, with the knowledge in mind that he is laying his heart out before them to serve them and save them, and yet they're going to be unwilling, what is he doing? He's making his way towards Jerusalem. See, the way that salvation comes to begin with is that Jesus moves towards sinners. Jesus moves towards those that reject him. Jesus moves towards those that are ungrateful. Jesus moves towards those that are hostile. Jesus moves towards those that don't care. Jesus moves towards those with a long history of rejecting God. Jesus moves towards that. 
Listen, you and I, that's probably not our instinct. Maybe on your best days you do that, but if people reject us, our normal inclination is not, I want to move towards you. If we know someone is unwilling, we probably don't want to move towards that person. Jesus, knowing full well what their heart is like, what their actions are going to be, he moves towards. Salvation comes, we could say, because Jesus moves towards sin, that he pursues sinners, that he knows everything about us and everything about those around us and in grace keeps taking steps towards us. You and me, oftentimes, we go, how, how, um, how receptive are they going to be? And that probably determines our choices. Jesus says, I know how unreceptive, and I'm not going to treat them that way. I'm going to treat them with grace and move towards. That's how salvation comes, first of all, is Jesus' heart of grace, which is true today for us. How salvation will come into our life, and again, I want to just make sure because it's a Christian word. When I'm saying salvation, I don't just mean from death to life, though that's true, but I also mean entering into and experiencing kingdom and banquet and family and being in his home and all his vision that he has for us. How that comes to us is that he keeps moving and saying, I want this for you. I want this for you. I know you're unreceptive. I know you're unwilling. I know that you're hostile. I know that I want this for you. He keeps moving towards us in our life. And second way that salvation comes, Jesus uses this image of the hen. He says, I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Now, when you hear that picture, uh, probably, I don't know what comes to your mind. When, when I, unless you're a farmer, you might have a different image. I'm not a farmer. Um, I don't know if you can tell that, but he, um, he, when he's using that image, the first thing that I thought of, and even in the past when I've heard this, is kind of his tenderness and his care and his comfort. I think more like a big cozy blanket, right? As a hen gathering her chicks, and it's this tenderness and this care and this love. And while that's true, that's not the main image that this is trying to get across when Jesus says this. When Jesus says that I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, there's a reason that a hen will gather a chick under her wings. You think you have a lot of kids, some of you, uh, you know, parents. You, there's a reason that a hen will do this. The reason that a hen will do this is to protect the chicks. So think that I, watched, I was watching some videos on YouTube and uh, for sermon research, you know, and, uh, you know, an eagle coming and a hen will protect the chicks. Or if there is a wolf or a fox or something like that that is coming, the hen will protect the chicks. Or if you think about, um, there's been stories of this. I was trying to Google some pictures of it, but I had some difficulty. But there's been stories of like a, a barn, a barnyard fire. And a hen, they will find like a, you know, a roasted chicken basically and kick off the blackened carcass and underneath will be alive chicks. That what a hen does is say, instead of it coming to them, let it come to me. 
what a hen does in gathering the chicks under is says, whatever is going to come to my chicks, no. Let it instead come to me. Let me be the one that gets eaten instead of them. Let me be the one that gets burned instead of them. Let me be the one that gets clawed and attacked by a bird of prey instead of them. Let me be the one that experiences the weight and the death and the pain so that my chicks can have life. Here is an image that I did find of a storm. This is in India. And the hen is taking the brunt of the storm so that the chicks are safe and protected. The hen is saying, whatever would come at you, I'm going to take it instead of you. See, that, I, love, I like the image of a tender Jesus that says, I want to comfort you. But that's really not what this passage is saying. This passage is Jesus saying, I am so willing to sacrifice myself for you. I am so willing to take the brunt of God's wrath and judgment and all that our sin deserves for you. I am willing to take the punishment for your sin. I am so willing to be eaten and burned and killed for you. This is what the highest form of love always is, right? The highest form of love is always self-sacrifice, which is why anytime somebody says, I believe in a God of love, you know, I'm not sure what kind of uh, God, you know, I'm not sure what God is out there, but I know I believe in a God of love. If that God is not a God that would sacrifice for you, then your God isn't even as good as a chicken. If the God that you say you believe in isn't a God that would sacrifice for you, then it's not really a God of love. It might be a nice God and kind of a, you know, a God that works at like a, a 50s ice cream soda shop or something and gives you an extra cherry on top, but it's, it's not a God that says, I will sacrifice for you. That's love. Jesus says, here's how salvation comes. I move towards sin in grace and I sacrifice myself to save you. Last thing I want us to explore is this. What does this salvation affect? There's three different ways, I think, that as we kind of take those ideas of who is in and how it comes that can help us then begin to think. So how would this affect God's vision for community? How would this affect God's vision then for our relationships? Three ways. The first is this. If being, if, if those that are in, if the ones that salvation comes to, if those that are in are those that respond to Jesus, it's those that come into, the, if, it, if, if it's those that enter into the door, if those that are in are those that respond to Jesus, then it's not just entrance. It's people that enter through the narrow door, but then to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. So the people that are in are those that respond to Jesus by entering, but then also continue to live in and respond as they share in the kingdom of God. What that means is this. Responding to Jesus should be the defining mark of our community, of our marriages, of our parenting, of our friendships. The, the defining characteristic should not just be 
we're all here together and we all listen to sermons and we all like each other and are trying to have fun together and be good moral people together. But the defining characteristic should be those that are responding to Jesus. That's what causes us to enter in through the narrow door and it's the defining mark and characteristic. Oftentimes, people will say something like, I want Jesus to be at the center of my marriage, or I want Jesus to be at the center of my family, or I want Jesus to be at the center of uh, my friendships. People will often say things like that, but here's the question. Is he? Is Jesus at the center? Or is it, does Jesus just kind of provide the context for your relationships? Meaning it's where you met people. You met people at church or he provides the context you gather in a community group or he provides the context that it creates kind of people that are in some ways like you that share some similar values and beliefs or are your relationships, your marriage, your friendships, your your community, is it marked by? We are going together to respond to Jesus in prayer, in obedience, in saying, how do we live on mission with Jesus together? In speaking to one another about Jesus in our lives? Is Jesus and responding to him the defining characteristic of your relationships? If someone were to observe and do a documentary about your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, and just kind of walk around, and then at the end they were to say, here is what defined them. Would it be fun? Would it be family? Would it be, what would it be? Would it be, these are people that respond to Jesus, that are seeking to follow him and obey him and love him and know him, this is part of what salvation affects, is that that's what he bought for us. That's what he wants for us. He, he saved us through a narrow door to bring us into a kingdom where we are now continually saying, I know who the king is that's entering in, and I want to live as a part of his kingdom. I want all my life to be marked by him. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. It affects our life in that it builds a trust for Jesus. It builds a trust in God. This passage, not the easiest passage to preach because it's filled with warning and judgment and hell and gnashing of teeth and, and weeping and casting out from the kingdom. It's not like, hey, you want to be you know, a nice, encouraging, like it's filled with a lot of warning stuff in there. It's filled with a lot of judgment and what people would have thought from Jesus as harsh words. And I mean, imagine the person that says, hey, Jesus, who's going to be saved? And Jesus says, some of you are going to say that you uh, were eating with me and listening to me. And I'm going to say, I don't know you. Get away from me. Oh, okay. Thanks, Jesus. Like there's some harsh words spoken. It probably created an uncomfortable um, silence in the room a little bit when Jesus was delivering this. If this was 2021, Jesus would have been canceled, right? All of the villages would have said, Jesus was going to speak here. He's not speaking here anymore. We've removed him from the roster. His social media accounts would have been turned off, right? Jesus would have been canceled from this kind of stuff today. But why? Why was he willing to speak those kinds of words? 
Why was he willing to be misunderstood? Why was he willing to be rejected? Why was he willing to walk into danger? Why was he willing to have people think less of him and judge him and why? And what he says is this. He says, I will complete my work. That's his mission. He is on a mission to go to Jerusalem. And in this phrase, even when they're kind of trying to say, hey, there might be some danger. Herod might try to kill you, which commentators aren't really sure. Are they trying to help Jesus or do they just want to get him out of there because they don't really like him because the Pharisees don't generally like Jesus. But what he says is this, I will complete my work. There is a dogged determination and grit that Jesus has where he's willing to speak harsh words. He's willing to create uncomfortable contexts. He's willing to be rejected. He's willing to die. What's driving him? I will complete my work. I will get the job done, which isn't just some job or making a name for himself or something that is self-centered. It is, I will complete my work to save. I will complete my work to gather the children together. He shares with us his determination. He shares with us his heart of what he so badly wants. Now, Here's how this affects us. That's, if that's true for them, it's true for us. If you've ever um, been in a job interview or done job interviews, one of the, the best ways to um, ask questions that they say is um, that people's past performance is the best indicator of their future performance, right? So you don't just listen to what someone says that they want to do or that they're going that they promise they're going to do. You you listen to what have you done already? So my wife and I are on a team that assesses people that want to start new churches. And those are a lot of the questions that we will ask them. There was somebody at one point that okay, tell us about, you know, being a pastor. Well, I've actually never been a pastor before. Okay? Tell us about someone that you've kind of counseled and discipled. Well, I've never really done that before, but here's how I plan on doing it. Here's what my plan is for it. Okay? Tell us how you've led a community group before. Well, I've never really done that before, but here's what I plan to do. Here's how I'm going to... Okay. Sorry. Not going to happen. Because your past performance is the best indicator of your future performance. And here's why I bring that up. Because if Jesus said then and to people that rejected him and were unwilling, if Jesus said to them, I will complete my work, if Jesus for them was willing to speak things and bring things into their life and walk into danger, it builds a trust in us that his past performance is, this, is indicative for us of what his future performance is going to be in our life. See, if you knew that in your life, every hard word that Jesus ever spoke to you wasn't because he was trying to be mean, but because he loved you and was trying to complete his work in your life. If you knew that every trouble that you were experiencing, that Jesus promised, I want to bring you salvation. I want to gather you under my wings. I will complete my work in your life. If you knew in every trouble and sorrow that you were going through, that that was still true of Jesus, that what was true of him then is true of him today, if you knew that every fear that you have and every area that you're uncertain 
What's going to happen? If you knew I have a God that will complete his work in my life, that will not stop. He's already shown he's willing to be rejected. He's willing to be misunderstood. He's willing to be killed. He's willing to be cast out for me to complete his work. If you knew that of him, what would that change? In every trouble, in every fear, in every hard word that he gives, it would build a trust in us to know I can trust him. I I know he's for me. And then finally, it does this. It moves us towards others in the same way that he has moved to us. If this is how he has been to us, it's also how he wants to be through us. See, if, if when we sin, Jesus doesn't push us away or ignore us or leave us, but moves towards us in grace, How would that change our relationships? If that's how we experienced his salvation, what would it look like as a community that is defined by his salvation to say, when there's sin, when there's people that misunderstand, when there's people that aren't very receptive, what if I move towards them the way he moved towards me? Wouldn't that change things in your marriage? Wouldn't it change things in friendships? If we said, I move towards those that I don't feel are very receptive. What if we were so committed to one another, like Jesus was committed to his work. We were so committed that we were willing to speak into people's lives. We were so committed to one another that we were willing to say things that might even, I'm not saying with unlove, but we're willing to say things that might even feel harsh, like Jesus did to us to the listeners here. What if we were so committed to people that we were willing to walk into pain and sacrifice for others? What if we had his burden and passion for people to enter in and experience? Like Jesus says, I I want so bad to gather you as a hen. What if we had that passion and care for people both those that are Christians to experience more of his salvation and those that are not Christians to enter in. See, what salvation affects is many things. It builds our trust in him. It moves us out towards those in the same way he moved towards us. And it becomes the defining mark of our relationships. We can have a a vision of our relationships. We can have a vision of our community. And yet there can be a reality that is very different. He wants to give us salvation. He wants to bring us in and have us be defined by and experience all that his vision is. We're going to take communion. If you didn't get it on the way in, there's little cups that you can grab. But we're going to take communion. And when we take communion, this is what we're remembering. We're remembering Jesus' salvation, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and we are asking him to remind us and make that real, the salvation that he bought for us and wants us to live in. We're saying as we take communion, God, let that affect all of me. It's part of why we eat. We don't just look at it. It's to say, let that get inside of me. Let your salvation be the defining mark of my life and my relationships. And so as you pray, I want you to just take some time and confess.
where you need to confess and to thank God where you need to thank him, to say thank you for your salvation, to confess where we haven't lived in all of that that means. Or if you're not a Christian, to say, Jesus, I, I want to enter through that door. I want to enter through the door and respond to you. Take some time, and then we will respond in a few songs. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer for healing or for anything going on in their life. I'd love to pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace to us, for giving us Jesus that builds a confidence in our souls that all that you did to give us salvation, you still will do and are doing to help us experience your ongoing salvation and kingdom in our relationships and in our lives. So God, I just pray you make these truths real to our hearts as we take communion and as we sing. Amen.